0: Let's get started. We are in week uh, two or three of our Lenten series. I, I, I should have written that down. Um, I want to tell you a story. Start off with a story this morning. It's a very well-known story. You might not have ever read it, but you've probably heard about it. Um, it's from a novel called The Brothers Karamazov by a Russian, Dostoevsky, uh, wrote in the middle of the 1900s. Um, and in this story, it's, it's kind of a story contained within... The Brothers Karamazov, it's kind of a short story called The Grand Inquisitor, right? The story within a bigger story. Um, and in The, grand, in, in the, in the um, grand Inquisitor, this story, Christ's Return. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and it's going to be a little odd, so just kind of hang in here. I'm not. This is not from the Bible, okay? Just, just make sure we all hear me clearly on this. This is a story not from the Bible, but related <laughs> about uh, the temptations, actually. Um, Christ's Return during the Spanish Inquisition. Right? This is from the started in the fourteen eighties by Ferdinand and Isabella and it continued for quite a couple hundred years. And the idea was that they were winning back lands uh, in Spain and Southern Europe that, the, that the, the Islam had taken over in the 700s and the 800s. And they're kind of winning them back for Christendom. And, and so we got what's called the Spanish Inquisition. And it, 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 was, it, was, it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, some estimates, uh, 32 plus thousand people executed. Um, the goal of the Spanish Inquisition was to make sure that, you, that they got the land back, but there were a couple bigger issues that they weren't as as, um, open about. Um, One was, if you were Catholic, you better be Catholic, right? A lot of people with the Spanish Inquisition, if you were a Muslim, you would fake being Catholic, right? Otherwise, you got hurt horribly, <laughs> or you had to leave, right? So you, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic. And well, the Catholic Church would make sure that you're a Catholic. So that, that was one thing that they were doing during the Spanish Inquisition. The second thing they were doing is to make sure, absolutely sure, um, that you were loyal to the crown. That was really a big part of it. They wanted to make sure that you were loyal to the crown because the crown and the church had gotten together, right? And they had formed a, an unholy partnership, you might want to call it. And they were kind of, the church was kind of running politics. The politics had their fingers in the church, and it was just just a big, big, big mess, just a big, big mess, right? So Spanish Inquisition, Christ returns, and he's persecuted and sent packing, right? He doesn't take off with his believers. He doesn't come and haul us off. Nothing like that happens. We send him packing, right? The Grand Inquisitor is actually a cardinal in the Catholic Church. And they, he sent packing because, because of this. If Jesus had just yielded to the devil's tests, now just think about this for a moment. If Jesus had just yielded to Satan's tests, all humanity's problems would have been solved. This is the grand inquisitor's point of view, by the way. Not necessarily mine, as we're going, we're going to arrive at that, and I don't think it's God's either, but... All humanity's problems would have been solved. Think about this. Give them miraculous bread to quiet their stomachs by transforming stone into bread. Right? Think about that. That would eliminate nations that have and nations that have not. Right? All wars fought over food and, and scarcity of, of resources. All of that, that would end. That would end. Give them mystery to calm their confused minds by proving that he was the Son of God and, and leaping off the top of the temple, right? That would have the potential to eliminate religious wars, right? We all got kind of competing gods, but if one of them stood up and appeared, <laughs> whoa. That, I don't think it would end all the arguments, but I think the potential's there. Religious wars could end. This is the inquisitor's point of view again. And finally, give them a divine authority to relieve them of the painful uncertainties and the responsibilities of freedom, right, and self-determination by joining Satan and ruling over the kingdoms of the earth. I mean, these were the three temptations. Can you imagine? It would eliminate war over ideology. All political wars would pretty much end if one powerful Kingdom just kind of ruled over everything and told you this is this is the way it's going to be. Now I want to just t- just for a moment here, what you see is an order in this is Matthew's order of the temptations. Um, if you look at the book of Luke, it's going to change. Luke flips the last two um, because Luke's um, he's got a, a theme, he's got an agenda in, in his gospel, and, and in his gospel you'll notice it starts and ends at the temple. Right, the very beginning of Luke, what, you got Zechariah and, and Elizabeth at the temple. And at the very, the very final line um, after the ascension, it says, And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Like that is the last verse of Luke's gospel. So that's his thing. Started at the temple, and it all evolves around the temple. Um, so he changes the last two. So don't let that confuse you. Right, we're going to follow Luke's order. Um, excuse me, we're going to follow Matthew's order because it is the correct order. Most scholars believe that's the correct order. Luke switched it to fit his purposes. Um, But I'm actually going to work from the book of Luke just to really confuse you. I just wanted to be perfectly honest with you. So again, order of the temptations in the different books are a little bit different. And again, last week we saw Luke didn't even, or excuse me, Mark didn't even include the temptations, right? His focus is just on Jesus. Anyway, back to our story or incredibly odd story. According to the Grand Inquisitor, each temptation is an opportunity to trade the burden of freedom and the uncertainties of faith for the easy security of worldly goods and objective knowledge. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Israel, Jesus, and us. It's always the same question. It faces all of us. We've all got that same issue, that same quandary in front of us. Will we choose the sacrificial calling of discipleship when the world offers so many other options that don't ask for any sacrifice? That's a, that's our, that, that's one big deal about these three temptations. If we could just kind of pile them all into one statement, right? Will we choose our calling of discipleship? Right. This is the burden of freedom. God's kingdom or the kingdoms of the world? Right. And a lot of times, the kingdoms of the world appear to have the better answer. And we have, God has given us the dignity of making a choice. We choose him, life, or we choose kingdoms of the world, death. He gives us that dignity of choice. We we have that choice. And the second question is, will we choose to have faith in God? This is kind of related to that. Will we choose to have faith in God even when we don't see, feel, or hear him on demand? Right? Where are you when I needed you? Right? You showed up when things were going really well, but when I called on you in the dark of the night, I didn't hear from you. I got no answers from you. Will we choose to have faith even when we don't see, feel, or hear God, when we want to see, feel, and hear from God? Right? No more Holy Spirit whispers. God, just, just holler out. Right? This is the un- uncertainty of faith. Right? There's no objective knowledge. There's no voices from heaven around the world shouting, true, sorry, not true. Right? We, we don't have that. If we did, can you imagine? All oh, so many problems would just be eliminated. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus also had to make these same choices And in testing Jesus, there's a couple things that we need to understand about his testing before we jump in to the first temptation. And just to let you know, next week or the next time I speak, it'll be the second temptation. And then our third one will be the the third temptation, just to kind of give you a heads up where we're going. Um, When we're testing Jesus, when we're talking about testing Jesus, we have to understand that each test comes externally. It comes from Satan. Satan's suggestions. it's not like Jesus is having this inner conflict. Oh, my goodness, do I sin or do I not sin? Right? We get the impression as you read any one of the accounts, Jesus doesn't ever seem to be in danger of failing he's just like just it's kind of a flat description Satan says something and he just well blah 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 and Satan says something and Jesus says well blah 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 right there's no real like oh like when we watch a movie and late at night and Diane and I tell each other we know that it ends well he won't die right there all the suspense is kind of gone in this this testing of Jesus Luke's point This is crucial here. It's not that Jesus can resist temptation to sin. That's really not the point of the temptation, right? He he seriously never wavers as far as as we can tell from the text, right? He's just been baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has told him, you are my son with whom I am well pleased, right? He's feeling it, right? He is feeling it. So in this context, the point seems to be that Jesus has to demonstrate his readiness to be a Messiah, not necessarily will he fail morally or not. That's really not the point of these temptations. The point of the temptations, will he obey God's way or will he go another way? Now, this is super important too. Another way is not necessarily evil. There's a lot of different ways we can do things when God calls us to do it this way. But it becomes sin for us when we know that it was not the route that he asked us to take. When we know that it's a shortcut around what we know he asked us to do, that's when it becomes a problem. Again, the temptation itself isn't the issue. It's when that temptation leads us to disobey God. That's the issue. The wilderness experience isn't a test of his morale. It's a test of his performative competence will he do what he has been asked to do? Not will he do a bunch of stupid things along the way. That's not, that's not the issue at all. Faithfulness to God is the primary qualification for these tests. And strangely enough, his identity as the Son of God doesn't exempt him from suffering and testing, right? In fact, that's the point of him suffering, right? You'd think the Son of God wouldn't need to suffer a testing, right? How could God fail a test? Well, there's a couple different ways, kind of related. One, we talked about that last week, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, right? Christ emptied himself of his divinity. Basically, he, didn't, he chose not to hit the God button, right? The staples button, the God button, right? He chose never to hit that button, although he had it within himself. He empties himself of that. But the second part, again, related to that is the incarnation. By becoming a human being, God has placed his son in danger. He has placed his son in the danger of failing, of sinning, of doing wrong things, right? He's humanity now. And if in the carnation he decides to hit the God button, he's no longer incarnated. He's, 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 he's pulled in as God. He's no longer human. We can no longer relate to him. If passing is inevitable, then Jesus' humanity is reduced to mere appearance. And we have no high priest who can fully sympathize with us. Last week, kind of went back to the garden in a manner of speaking, right? With Jesus, where he succeeds, where Adam and Eve failed. This week, by way of Luke and a little bit of Matthew, we're going to head back to the wilderness with Jesus. Jesus to make right what Israel <laughs> failed to do. Where ancient Israel failed to trust in God's provision and obey his commandments in their wilderness wanderings, Jesus succeeds at flying colors. And he can step in and represent Israel. And this is super important. Not anybody can step in and do this job. I can't do this. You can't do that. You are not a true son of Israel. You are not of the lineage of David and of Abraham and all them. Right? So we can't, we're not in a position to do this. But Jesus is a true son of Israel, which Luke makes super clear right out of the gate. Watch this, where Matthew and Mark's narration has Jesus moving immediately from his baptism, and boom, immediately the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. And we're going we're to look at that next week um, because it's a, it's a little bit odd, right? We're God and Satan in cahoots on the whole temptation thing, right? That's a teaser for next week. I'm not going to give you the answer yet. But right out of the gate... Luke has, right, where where Matthew and Mark, there's a baptism, bam, into the wilderness. Luke has a a baptism, and then he throws in a genealogy, like, time out, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. And then we'll get back to the story, right? This is in in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And again, where Matthew and Mark have the Holy Spirit immediately delivering Jesus to Satan in the wilderness, and that's just weird, right? The Spirit delivers Jesus to Satan, right? We're going to look at that next week. Crazy thing. Um, Luke takes a kind of a different, a scenic route, right? This is, this is continuing, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it continues for 15 verses. Like every verse, like three or four generations of people was the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, all the way back to Adam. Why did Luke stick this weird genealogy right in the middle of the fast action pace that Mark and Matthew had been following, right? baptism, wilderness, temptations, nazareth, right? Just boom 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 he just he just kind of stops and pauses. Luke wants his readers to understand that Jesus is no ordinary prophet. Again, this is a prophet of the house of David, the house of Abraham, the house of Adam, the house of God, right? This is no ordinary prophet. So just pay attention readers, this is this, this is kind of Luke, right? All right, so now on to our first temptation, Luke, chapter 4. After the whole big, long genealogy, boom, chapter 4 starts out, verse 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For, for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Like, If. You are the son. It's like Satan is taunting him. Did you really hear a voice from heaven say that you're the son of God? Are you really as strong as you think you are? Let's see you prove it. And at his weakest moment, right, extreme hunger does things to you. right? I mean, I learned that watching Saturday morning cartoons. If you're extremely hungry and you're on a deserted island, your buddy's going to begin to look like a drumstick. Right? Y'all remember that, right? If you're really, really hungry, things change. And on a more serious note, read first hand accounts of sailors, World War II, ships being sunk, an extreme thirst, and they would hallucinate and they would imagine mermaids, hey, drink this cup of water, and they would drink the salt water, and they would immediately die. So extreme hunger, extreme thirst, don't downplay that, right? One study I read, I mean, depending on your health, your age, and and I I think about Jesus, the Mediterranean diet, right? (laughs) I'm thinking they were still on that diet back then. I'm thinking he was a fairly healthy guy, carpenter, you know, blue-collar kind of guy. And according to this one doctoral study, um, over a month a person can live I'd heard as little as three weeks, um, this, this author says, almost two months, depending on the person. And so it is possible, right? We can, we can get into a whole bunch of questions about fasting, but he, he was hungry and he was served. That's the point that Luke is trying to make. Matthew makes the same point. He was at a physical point where he could easily sort of be out of his mind, just a little bit, and make a bad decision. Satan's like, Now's the time. Now, pounce right now, right now. Essentially, Jesus, excuse me, essentially, Satan is tempting Jesus to do the exact same thing that Israel had done in the wilderness, right? Not trust in God's provision. Exact same question, exact same test. Nothing different, nothing different at all. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1 through 3. We read this earlier. This is a Moses speaking to the Israelites. Right? They've already, they've done their 40 years wandering, and they're, they're looking across the river, and Moses is saying, look, y'all, don't forget. Like the whole book of Deuteronomy, don't forget. Remember, 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 remember the entire book. Right here, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for those 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And they did make it, right? They did make it but by the skin of their teeth, right? By the very grace of God. And once they entered the promised land, what? It was one dismal failure to obey after another, right? Just, Just horrible, horrible. He humbled you in the wanderings in the desert, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, God was trying to teach the Israelites that there was more important things than material possession, material provision, food, all that kind of stuff, even in relation to the apparently very, very important subject of food and drink. There are more important things than food or drink. And again, we step back and go, yeah, but you die without food or drink. Well, let me tell you something. There's other ways to die. See, in the test, would they trust him when they were hungry? No, they didn't trust at all. Nothing but complaints, threats against Moses. Again, because they didn't believe that God would provide for them in the desert. And even when God does prove them wrong, provides manna, food in the desert, and quail, what do they do? They moan and groan and complain. They even gather it on the Sabbath against God's instructions because they don't trust God's provision. And so here comes Satan. Hey, Jesus, break your fast. Jesus says, sorry. God told me to fast, and until he's done with the fast, I'm on a fast. That's it. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm on a fast. That's that's it. And Jesus knows all this background as Satan is bringing it up to him. He's well aware of what happened in the wilderness, right? And he responds accordingly. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And again, Matthew adds the rest of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Though he could have turned the stones to bread and eased his own hunger, he refuses to use his power even to feed himself. And if you just stop for a moment and think about this, right? if we look around and see the many starving people in the world, we might be inclined to think that maybe he should have fed himself. Maybe he should have fed the multitude. You know, there is a story in the book of John I've been kind of standing up here saying, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all address the temptations of Christ, but John doesn't. Well, in fact, John does. Just kind of a a different format, right? Remember in the book of John, he feeds a crowd of 5,000. And what do the people immediately want to do, right? He he did what he refuses to do here, but in the book of John, he does it. He feeds them. And what do the people do? The exact same as the three temptations. Fed him bread, gave him incredible signs as to who he was and what they wanted to do. They wanted to make him king. Right? The same exact three temptations all over again, but John just kind of gives it to us in a different format. Something to think about, take home, spend some time with that one. But we could have solved all the problems, leave people to starve and die of hunger. When Jesus could have easily fed the entire world. Well again, Jesus says man cannot live on bread alone. This is the way the Grand Inquisitor explains it. In that thou was right, for the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to have something to live for. Right? It's this God's word. Throughout his word, he says, right, you got two choices. You can choose your way, and it leads to to death, or you can choose my way, and I will give you life. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you meaning, right? You won't just live your days waiting to die, taking up space, right? I will have you on mission, right? You'll have a reason to get up in the morning. You'll have a reason to hit your knees in prayer. You'll have a reason to live and not retire because I got you on mission, Man needs something to live for. Without a stable conception of the object of life, right, man would not consent to go on living and would rather destroy himself than remain on earth, though he had bread in abundance. Right? You catch what he's saying here, right? We can have all the material wealth, and we see this all the time. We see, what do we see, lottery winners? Boom, they got all this wealth, and boom, miserable, miserable, right? Nothing but death. Right? We, we, I, I, remember a study they did. They, they had one group of people, um, doing a task that, that had no purpose or meaning, but they paid them boatloads of money. And another group, they paid them chump change, right? But it was super meaningful, full of purpose, right? At the end of the day, who wants to come back next week and work? These people want to quit. They're, they're they they get everything, all the money in the world, but it's not worth it because what they're doing is meaningless. It's pointless. And no amount of money or bread or anything else is going to cover a life that's pointless and that doesn't have any meaning. Same with retired life. I hear this all the time. All the money in the world saved up for retirement. And folks quickly die for lack of purpose. Right? Their only purpose was their work. They'd really never, I'm not sure, maybe never integrated this as a purpose and a meaning in their life. And once they retired, all of their purpose and meaning disappeared because they had never picked up this as purpose and meaning. Just a guess there. And I think it's the difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Being a believer and agreeing to facts. Yes, I agree that Jesus is this, God is that, Holy Spirit's. Right, I believe all those things. But being a disciple is a little bit different. Just believing in things. I'm going to say this in a rather mean way. It's taking up space, waiting to die. But being a disciple, that's about being on mission still. And the fact of the matter is, even as Christians, we're not immune to a distorted relationship with the material world. we got body image issues, oh my goodness, cereal house purchasing, addictions to being the center of social attention, addictions to shopping, exercise, computer gaming, and then the less subtle addictions to alcohol, drugs, pornography, celebrity culture, gluttony. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, on and on and on. We try to pull from the world something that'll fill that God hole, right, that you always hear about trying to fill it with all this other stuff. But here's the key. This is super important. We kind of talked about this earlier. It's really not about food or godlike knowledge or worldly authority, you know, the temptations or any of the things on this list here. None of them are inherently evil, right? You think about pornography, it's basic human sex. That's not evil. But taken out of the context that God provided it for us, it becomes evil. Everything on this list, food, celebrities, all of it, none of it is inherently evil, but when we place it above God, it becomes a problem. The temptations in and of themselves weren't the issue. The sin was in choosing to disobey God's will, choosing our own way over his way. Is Jesus tempted differently from us? Right? He got tempted to use his divinity to satisfy his human desires, his hunger. Right? can we be tempted to do miracles to satisfy our immediate, our immediate desires? I don't think so. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I watched too much. Maybe I watched too much Bewitched and didn't read enough of the Bible, but I kind of figured if I would wiggle my nose and shut my eyes, the vacuuming would be suddenly done. And I would, I kid you not, I would keep my eyes closed for like three or four minutes because I had to have faith, apparently. Like I got things mixed up just a little bit, right? <laughs> Can we be tempted to do miracles to satisfy our immediate desires? No, I'm telling you, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But, but can we be tempted to do, and you just fill in the blank, can we be tempted to do whatever to satisfy our own physical, spiritual, and social needs? Yes, we can. We can be tempted exactly like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. His temptation really was no different than the way we're tempted Here's our dilemma: The Grand Inquisitor, who again is a ca- cardinal in the Catholic Church, persecuting Jesus because Jesus refused to make bread to feed himself, and yet, this, this, this is the kicker here, and this is, the, this, is a, this work was not happy with the Catholic Church. So, so I, I'm not bagging on the Catholic Church. this is this kind of what's the big C church, whatever here. According to the Grand Inquisitor, the church provides food and assistance to those who are poor and distressed. Why didn't Jesus do that? Christ refused to perform a miracle to demonstrate his claim to be the Son of God, and yet the church awes the conscience of the multitudes through the performance of mysteries and invocation of miracles. Christ refused to ally himself with Satan to rule over mankind and create a lasting and universal peace. And yet the church has long allied itself with state power. So we're the church. And we might not be the church in this story, but we are the church. And, and there are some words of warning here for us. Right? We can't just give people bread. We've got to give people living bread. They go hand in hand. Right? They really shouldn't be separated. Hand in hand. Right? We can't take away the mystery Right, Be too dogmatic in, our, in what we... we you, know, you got to believe this way and this way, and if you don't, oh, sorry, out of the pool, party's over. Right, we, we can't approach people in that manner. We've got to figure out how to live in God's kingdom in the midst of the world's kingdoms <coughs> because that's what's going on right now, right? The now but not yet. God's kingdom is breaking into this world, and yet the old kingdom is still kicking and so we've got a, a clash of kingdoms, and this is, what we, this is the world that we live in. And so our challenge is the church, right? How do we address the needs of the world? And there's a lot of different ways that we can address it. Governments are giving us all sorts of different ways, and they tend to be ways of the world. Not, not, not completely, but God calls us to attend to the needs of a different kingdom, right? A kingdom that, that, that operates by love and not power or coercion. It operates by love. And where Jesus is faced with that temptation of working around, finding the shortcut, we do that really well. We can always find shortcuts when we know the way that God has called us to be and to live. So I want to close this morning just with, with that challenge. The world tempts us in a lot of different ways to be less than what God wants us to be. Lots, lots of different ways that we can compromise. But what we got to make sure that people understand Because everything that this world has to offer, it will give you temporary life, but it will not give you eternal life. It won't last. It just won't last. It'll rust and decay and mold, right? We know this. We learned this a week after Christmas when we were kids, right? Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much that Jesus didn't yield to Satan. Father, you... Give us honor and you give us dignity by allowing us to choose between life and death. And Father, when we work around your will, when we look for shortcuts, when we try to find the easy way, it seldom, if ever, leads to life. It just leads to a big mess. And so, Father, as we, as we study your word, as we hear from your Holy Spirit throughout the week, Help us to be humble. Help us to rely on you and to trust you where you've said that you are trustable. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, both of whom we we can figure this out. You've given us everything we need. It's not a mystery. And Father, where we come up short, you cover us with your grace and we love you and we thank you for this father in your son's name we pray amen